We're looking tonight at Article 20 of the Belgic Confession. That's found on page 62 in the Three Forms of Unity. And it's entitled, God Has Manifested His Justice and Mercy in Christ. We believe that God, who is perfectly merciful and just, sent his Son to assume that nature in which the disobedience was committed, to make satisfaction in the same, and to bear the punishment of sin by his most bitter passion and death. God therefore manifested his justice against his Son when he laid our iniquities upon him and poured forth his mercy and goodness on us, who were guilty and worthy of damnation, out of mere and perfect love, giving his Son unto death for us, and raising him for our justification, that through him we might obtain immortality and life eternal. Brothers and sisters, in our Lord Jesus Christ, we come here in Article 20 to the fourth step in the Confession's order of salvation. The first step, as we will recall, was God's eternal election. Our salvation is founded in the eternal and unchangeable decree of God. The second step in the order was the promise of God, Article 17, especially the promise made to Adam and Eve immediately after the fall, as found in Genesis 3, verse 15. That promise was the beginning of the fulfillment of God's election. The third step in that order was the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ, Articles 18 and 19. And here we have the beginning of the fulfillment of the promise made to Adam and Eve and all the promises made to his people during Old Testament times. We come now in this article to the end of the life of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the primary purpose of the life of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he should, by his suffering and death, make satisfaction to the justice of God for our sins. So the fourth step in this order of salvation is Christ's satisfaction for us. And the confession treats that subject of uh, satisfaction in Articles 20 and 21, In this article especially, the idea of the justice and mercy of God as revealed in that satisfaction, and in the next article, the work of Christ as our high priest in making that satisfaction. It's interesting to compare the title of this article and even the content of this article with the content of Article 16. If you turn back to Article 16 for a moment, you will see that that article also talks about God revealing himself such as he is, that is just and merciful. And the confession says in connection with that article then that God has revealed his mercy to us, his elect, and he has revealed his justice to the reprobate by leaving them in the misery and ruin in which they have involved themselves. But now, in Article 20, the Confession speaks again of the revelation or manifestation of God's justice and mercy, but now speaks 
of that justice and mercy both being manifested to his elect. So putting the two articles together, we come to the conclusion God was just to the reprobate, but he is both just and merciful to his elect. And that's a very important point that the confession is making here. Because the idea is, of course, that our salvation is a just salvation. Not just a merciful salvation, but a just salvation. And it must be a just salvation. Because any salvation which contradicts the justice of God would be a denial of that justice of God and a rejection of that justice of God. If we do not have a just salvation, we do not have really a salvation at all. And that's going to be the main point which we make as we're looking at this article. We're going to look at three things. We're going to look first at God's attributes of justice and mercy. We're going to look in the second place at those attributes as manifested in Christ, and especially in his death. And then we're going to look at the purpose of this manifestation of God's justice and mercy. So let's begin by looking first at the justice of God. Technically speaking, of course, the justice of God, as we noticed in connection with Article 1 of the Confession, is not an attribute of God. His attribute is righteousness. And when we talk about his righteousness, what we mean is that God is without sin in all his works and ways and in all his thoughts. There is no sin at all in him. And justice is the revelation of that righteousness of God as he applies his righteousness to us in his dealings with us and with all men, for that matter. He is, in all his dealings with his creatures, a just God. Now, when we talk about that justice of God, we can do more, I think, than say simply that God is fair and equitable in his treatment of us. Because when we talk about the justice of God, there is, first of all, implied in that, that he is our lawgiver. And that as our lawgiver, he has given to us commandments by which he says, we must govern our lives. This is the way, he says, that I want you to live. And when he says that, of course, He is giving to us a law that is completely just. It's not a law which is unfair, inequitable in any fashion. It is a law that is in all its parts, in all its relations, in all its workings out, perfectly fair, perfectly just, perfectly righteous. In fact, in that law, God is really saying to us, you must be like me. If you are to live with me, you must be like me. If you are to enjoy my fellowship, you must be holy, you must be righteous, as I am holy 
and righteous. So he has given to us first a perfectly just law. That's part of his justice towards us. That he gives us a just law. And when we live according to that law, we live justly. Especially towards our neighbor. God requires us to love our neighbor, but he also requires us to act justly to our neighbor. In fact, uh, the practice of love is in justice, or the practice of justice is in love. They go together. So it's a perfectly just law. But he has also, as our lawgiver, attached to that law a penalty for disobedience. And that penalty, which he has attached to the law, is a just penalty. That penalty is death. The wages of sin is death. Now that may seem extreme to us sometimes. That even minor transgressions should be punishable by death. But the fact of the matter is, of course, that in transgressing the law of God, we uh, act against the most high majesty of God. We rebel against him. We refuse to serve him. We choose another God besides him. We forsake him. And that's true of any sin. That we commit. And so every sin is worthy of death. So God has given us a just law and He has attached to that law a just penalty. That's the first part of His justice towards us. He is our lawgiver in these two respects. But He is also our judge, not only our lawgiver but also our judge. In fact, he comprehends in all his dealings with us the legislative, executive, and judicial branches of government, if you want to make that kind of distinction. He is all these things towards us. And as our judge, of course, he considers all our works. Every deed that we do, Every word that we speak, every thought of our hearts, every desire of our wills, and he judges all of it according to his law, the law that he has given to us. That law uh, is always consistently applied. He does not uh, hide some commandments from us so that we can never be quite sure whether We are doing what he wants or not. He does not add to the law that he's given us. It's complete. He does not take away from it. As he enforces that law, he enforces that law as he has given it to us. And he does not, in the enforcement of the law, then become too harsh so that he's tyrannical in his application of the law, nor does he become too soft so that he overlooks or deals too lightly with our transgressions. But he's always, in his application of the law, as our judge, just, again, perfectly just. That's an impossibility for us, of course, 
in our fallen condition to be perfectly just. We always fall short of perfect justice. But God is perfectly just. He deals with all that we do according to his law, and he applies to us exactly the penalties that the law requires. And no more and no less. He's just, perfectly just. And of course, that's a source of terror to us as sinners. It is this attribute of righteousness and justice that is the most threatening attribute to us. We are sinners. We know that we deserve death. We know that if God comes into judgment with us, we will surely perish. I want to call your attention to a couple of passages in the scriptures that speak of this justice of God. The first is in Psalm 97, Psalm 97, verses 2 to 7. We read there, clouds and darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. And note that statement, righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. His throne is founded on righteousness and justice. If he did not act righteously and justly, his throne would fall. A fire goes before him and burns up his enemies round about. His lightnings light the world, the earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. The heavens declare his righteousness and all the peoples see his glory. Let all be put to shame who serve carved images, who boast of idols. Worship him, all you gods. And also Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 3 and 4. Moses is here in Deuteronomy 32 teaching the people of Israel the song that the Lord uh, gave him. And he says in verses 3 and 4 at the beginning of that song, therefore, I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. He is the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice a God of truth and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. God is just and righteous in all his dealings with us. He cannot be otherwise. But is not God also merciful? Yes, God is indeed merciful. He is good and delights in doing good to his creatures. He's not a God who delights in the death of sinners. He's not a God who delights in cruelty and severity and punishment and judgment. He is a God who delights in goodness. He is gracious and gives freely from his bounty. He is merciful and takes compassion on those who are miserable. But he is never merciful at the expense of his justice. 
That is the key truth that lies at the root of this article we're looking at. He is never merciful at the expense of his justice. If there is a question between mercy and justice, justice will prevail. We find in Psalm 5, verses 4 and following, the justice of God against our sins. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. He is just and he is merciful. In fact, when he declared his name to Moses, he talked about this very fact. Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. Moses asked if he could see God and God uh, appeared to him. Verse 5, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. There's his mercy, his goodness and his grace. But he goes on immediately to say, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. He is both merciful and just. And his justice requires that our sins be punished. He cannot forgive sins simply by overlooking them. He cannot say, let's just forget about them. There is no hope of salvation for us by a way that denies or contradicts the justice of God. There are two facts in the scriptures, I think, that make this abundantly clear. The first is, as we've already suggested, the judgment of the wicked. There is a terrifying verse in Revelation chapter 14 that we should note here. Revelation 14 verse 11 where we read, And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. That's his justice. The smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. The second scriptural fact that points us to the importance of the justice of God in our salvation is his judgment of sin in Christ. Rather than that sin should go unpunished, he has punished it 
in the bitter and shameful death of his beloved son. In that most bitter passion and death, as our confession says, he has been just against sin. That's what his justice requires. So he is just and he is merciful. And he is not merciful in conflict with his justice. His mercy is a just mercy and must be a just mercy. That brings us then to the second part of our study tonight, and that is the manifestation of this justice in Christ. In Lord's Day 5 of the Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 12, we have this, Since then, by the righteous judgment of God, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment. How may we escape this punishment and be again received into favor? And notice that the Catechism doesn't answer the question, how may we escape this punishment? Instead, it talks about the justice of God. God wills that his justice be satisfied. Therefore, we must make full satisfaction to that justice, either by ourselves or by another. We must make satisfaction to the justice of God. Can we ourselves make this satisfaction? Question 13. Certainly not. On the contrary, we daily increase our guilt. God will not punish. God cannot punish us for our sins and save us at the same time. If we are truly punished for our sins, we perish under that punishment. We cannot bear the wrath of God and survive. We cannot atone for our own sins. Furthermore, as the Catechism goes on to say, and as our uh, article in the Confession also makes clear, God will not punish any other creature for our sins. That would be unjust. Man sinned. Man must bear the punishment of sin. So what did God do? He sent his son to assume that nature in which the disobedience was committed. That's his mercy and his justice. Combined. He laid our iniquities upon him. That was, you know, the point of the sacrifices of the Old Testament, the bloody sacrifices of the Old Testament. In fact, you will find that in a number of places in the book of Leviticus. We'll look at just one, Leviticus chapter 1, verse 4, where we have the rules for the burnt offering. And there, in describing that burnt offering, he instructs the priests this way, then he shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. 
The priest laid his hand on the head of these burnt offerings. And he laid his hand on the head of the burnt offerings as a sign that the sins of the people were being placed on that animal. And it was because the sins of the people had been placed on that animal by the priest's hand that then when the animal was killed and offered, it was accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. The animal became the substitute, the substitute sacrifice for the satisfaction of the justice of God. You have another example of that in Leviticus chapter 16, verses 21 and 22. Leviticus 16, verses 21 and 22 are about the scapegoat. And notice there what God says about the high priest there. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, Confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat, and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness." priest laid his hands on the head of the goat and transferred the sins of the people, all their transgressions, to the head of the goat. And the goat was then sent away from the camp in order to signify and foreshadow the removing of the sins of God's people of all ages, as far as east from west is distant. He has laid on Christ the iniquity of us all. He has made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He has cursed him with our curse so that we may not have to bear that curse. Christ became our representative and our substitute in the judgment of God and assumed to himself our guilt and bore the justice of God against our sins by his most bitter passion and death. There's nothing that reveals that passion, that bitter passion of Christ more than his words on the cross, my God, My God, why have you forsaken me? He has shown, the confession says, his justice to Christ so that he may show his mercy to us. His justice was satisfied by the death and suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because it was satisfied, God has raised him also from the dead. That's a quotation in our article from Romans chapter 4, verse 25. Romans 4, verse 25, where the apostle is talking about, in that chapter, our justification. And he says at the end of that chapter, now it was written, 
not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us, it shall be imputed to us who believe in him, that is, righteousness shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses, and was raised because of our justification. God raised him from the dead because he had fully borne the penalty for our sins, for the sins of all his elect. And therefore, he pours out his mercy and his goodness and his love on us. His mercy to us is a just mercy. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that everyone who believes on him should not perish but have everlasting love, life. Herein is love not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. His mercy and his justice meet together in our Lord Jesus Christ. We come then to the purpose of this manifestation of the mercy of God, and that is stated in our confession with these words, that through him we might obtain immortality and life eternal. As God raised Christ from the dead because of our justification, so he raises us from the dead because of that righteousness which Christ has accomplished for us. We have the righteousness of God in Christ, and therefore we have the right to life. As we said, his mercy is a just mercy, and our salvation is founded not only in the mercy of God in Christ, but in the righteousness of God in Christ. And that is another reason why that mercy of God and that salvation are irreversible. If God were to turn back and not complete that work of salvation which he has begun in us, it would be a denial of his justice. It would be unrighteousness in him to turn his back on the work of salvation which he has already accomplished for us. He cannot do it and he will not do it. And so, people of God, God deals with us even now as our judge. But he judges us righteous in Christ as if we never had had nor committed any sin and he deals with us not just as a father as a judge but also as a father sometimes as a father he is very severe with us we need that severity to be corrected to be uh, cleansed from our sins. Hebrews 12 talks about that chastising hand of God upon us. 
My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us, as seemed best to them. But he, for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Yes, he is severe with us. He chastises us, as every good father chastises his disobedient children. But his severity is a merciful severity because of Christ. We glory, therefore, in the mercy and goodness and love and grace of Christ. And we must not forget, people of God, that we can also glory in the righteousness of God in Christ given to us because we have been redeemed by the precious blood of the Lamb who offered himself for us. May God bless you with his word.